Welcome to a Drop Tent Media Production. The Porcupine with Adam Nutter. Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of The Porcupine Live, of course, as always. Uh, I'm Adam Nutter. What's going on? Uh, end of the year. Not not much left for uh, for any shows you want to come see me at, except for the only one I'm doing until 2022. December 30th, West Collingswood, New Jersey at Rexy's. Get your tickets at droptent.com slash events. Uh, and then, again, January 2022 and on, I'm hitting the road. Well, I would say February, March, I'm hitting the road pretty hard. Uh, I'm going to be a lot of places, so follow me at Adam Nutter for all the stuff, for all of my dates. I'm going to be posting uh, a lot of Mises Caucus shows I'm going to be doing, so come on out, all you MC fucking psychopaths. And of course, also, please uh, buy a shirt. Yeah, go to droptent.com slash store. Get that porcupine shirt. Fucking good quality. Cut slaves off like ideal and be white trash in summertime. It's fun. <laughs> we all do it. Uh, droptent.com slash store. All right, that's enough for me. Uh, guys, my guest today, uh, you you know him, you love him, of course, the great Scott Horton. Scott, thank you, sir. Hey, how are you doing? Good, man. Uh, I should say also say uh, potential budding stand-up comedian, Scott Horton. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you know what? My best line of the night I got from you, so. Yeah, I know. I was so psyched when you said that. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. great. That was a good opener. I'm, uh, I'm glad it went well for you. Were you nervous first time doing stand Because you're a speaker. Yeah. So. I mean, you know, I've been doing radio since 1998, or I used to be a guest on radio as early as like probably 95, you know, when I was still just a high school kid where, so I used to get nervous as hell before things, but I really don't anymore. Yes. Um, I, I was curious because yeah. obviously stand is a whole new world and I didn't know if you're going to have the nerves of like, oh, I hope the shit lands <laughs> or just yeah, confident. Yeah. Well, I did hope that the shit landed, <laughs> but I knew it was. You know, everybody there, they're going to like me. They're going to be generous with their laughter, whether they really think it's funny or not anyway. Like the spirit of the thing, it was going to work out, you know, pretty much, I'm sure. But I yeah, do well, wish, though, that I had, um, I wish that I had had the confidence to, because I reread the thing so many damn times and tinkered with it for <laughs> so long that I really should have. And this is how I would do most speeches, right? Like if I'm talking about the terror war, it just says Reagan years. And then I know what that means, mm-hmm. but that's just to make sure I don't skip an era or whatever. But then I know what to say there. And what I should have done is I really should have, you know, because I had read it so many times, I really should have reduced it all down to one or two word notes and then more or less ad libbed the, they're not exactly ad libbed, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, went ahead and just said it, you know, uh, whatever. You know what I mean? The two different kinds of speech, one from a actual written thing and sure. one from just notes. And so I think I actually could have pulled that off. And it definitely would have been funnier if I was not like reading from my thing the whole time. But yeah, anyway. but for the first time, I mean, I watched it. You did really well. I mean, for the first time again, especially like you only came to, to us for like like notes. It's not like you were like, hey, write this material for us. You're like, hey, this is what I wrote. Anything. And this is what we do. I, yeah. I do that with, with my buddy Neil all the time. I'm like, yo, I wrote a joke about a cheetah. Is this funny? And I'll right. just run it by him. It's Which, by the way, for, for people who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about, um, well, first of all, I was hanging out with you and Robbie in Lockhart, Texas. That was fun. Um, eating barbecue and talking about this stuff. <laughs> and then um, it, this was uh, at Tom Woods' 2000th episode party in Orlando is what the event was. And I was the surprise guest. 
And so, yeah. yeah, I had gone over my my jokes with uh, Robbie and Adam, and you guys helped me out. So, yeah, yeah it was cool. felt, And then, uh, you know, I added honored. a lot after that, too, and I changed up some things. In fact, I don't know if you noticed that Jeff Deist made the same joke or partially the same joke that I was going to make about how white Eric July's band is. Oh, yeah. But I had luckily changed that by then to a different joke, so... Yeah, no. You, well. Is this gonna be like your new thing now? You're gonna do surprise guest visits on fucking other shows. You know what? I, the thing is, <laughs> is I I think of good stand up stuff to me that's funny all the time, but then I'm like, man, people are gonna think. And and I know like from my from experience that I'm a lot funnier off the cuff if I come up with something to say rather than um trying to do like rehearsed material that i've already done before or something like that you know what i mean my jokes not if i the same if i tell the same joke a few times it doesn't land quite right you know no so, that's for sure true i'll like, leave it to you guys man i'm not that funny <laughs> yeah, if i was like, a little bit funnier i i actually went through this whole decision making in the 1990s like do i really want to try that <laughs> and then i thought no nah, i want to err on the side of like serious subject matter because a lot of what to me is funny is all stuff that probably makes me look terrible <laughs> you know what i mean so uh, that's called being a good comic scott you just yeah it yeah humor. exactly <laughs> yeah be yeah not caring being willing to go ahead and throw yourself all, that far under the bus to get a laugh you know but so yeah i don't yeah, know that, i got i got nieces do. man i don't want them <laughs> i don't want them watching me on youtube and going oh my god so. dude that's a it's not like a real worry i have but i've thought about that like uh in the future like uh, like uh, a kid of mine like looking back and being like the fuck dude i'm like i don't know i said dick and <laughs> pussy a lot i don't know I was drunk. <laughs> I smoked a lot of weed and a lot of shrooms yeah. uh and that's what got in my head man and that's what i say <laughs> that's how you get yep. money so you're welcome <laughs> that's good it's better than working you know no it really is uh yeah but I did want to uh, obviously get 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 you on for a little bit. But uh, by happenstance, this whole Russia Ukraine thing just happened, and yeah. uh, it's it's part. It's one of those things where it came up, and like everything else is, I feel like is more important going on. Like I don't know tyranny in our own country, <laughs> like the vaccine stuff. So yeah. I, I barely paid attention to it. But then like I started seeing more and more libertarians like comment on like the hey this is like this might get serious this might get serious, and I was like oh you you're coming on I'll wait. So, like, what is actually, like, I remember the whole Crimea thing from a few years ago. Is that just, like, this part two? Yes, this has much okay. to do with that, for sure. I mean, I, I would say just to start here that, actually, this is the most important thing in the world, and nothing else is even on the same scale. Shit, right? okay. It's like comparing a galaxy to one star or something. This is the entire survival of our species hangs in the balance on this question of america's oh, relationship with russia Fuck, okay. if we have a full-scale war with russia worst case scenario nuclear war with russia then billions will die mm -hmm. like maybe some people hiding out down in chile and tasmania will survive and we'll be able to try to start humanity over only set back by three thousand years or whatever it is five um so i mean one of these h-bombs can kill a whole city. So the so the the Russians have a new heavy missile that has what's called a multiple re-entry vehicle, uh, you know, multiple warheads on one rocket. And so one rocket can kill every major city in Texas. They have enough warheads on one rocket plus dummies to distract from missile defenses that they could kill El Paso and Dallas and Fort Worth 
and Waco and Austin and San Antonio and Corpus and Galveston and Houston and, you know, um, Port Arthur or whatever, all of everything, every major city in Texas could just be completely wiped out from one missile. Our entire, you know, civilization gone in a, in a, the space of one minute or something. And so really nothing else matters at all compared to America's relationship with Russia. It's the most important thing. And what we have, as you could tell, and as your audience already knows, as everybody knows, right, is our government is the captive of the military industries. Mm -hmm. And they want to get rid of H-bombs. Like your buddy Jimmy wants to get rid of pounds of weed at his house, <laughs> right? Like, I got this stuff. I got to get rid of it. That's their business, selling H-bombs. And it's no different than if you think of the fighter plane lobby or the Israel lobby or anybody else. The H-bomb lobby up there, Lockheed and Honeywell and, you know, the other major, Northrop Grumman and the other major companies that are involved in the contracting on the nuclear weapons and the care and the feeding of them and all of these things. It's a huge business. And they have, you know, in the Congress, they're not even ashamed. They're the nuclear lobby. They're here to make sure that these nuclear dollars keep coming back to our states. Like it's all just one big boondoggle. Only we're talking about H-bombs. The whole thing is completely crazy. It is, as my friend Adam says, the flea wagging the dog. It's completely nuts. And so if you zoom out, like, let's just say you and me are Kang and Kodos, and we just arrived in orbit here, and we're looking down on this thing from a third-person, sort of omniscient kind of point of view. Well, listen, this Saturday, Adam, this coming Saturday, four days from now, will be the 30th anniversary of the final end of the USSR, the, the final collapse of the Soviet Union on Christmas Day, 1991. I watched it live on TV at the time. Uh, they pulled down the red flag and they put up the red, white, and blue Russian flag over the Kremlin, even Belarus and Ukraine and Tajikistan and all of the last of the republics, uh, so, so-called Soviet republics, the Baltics were all let free and it was over. That was it. And you would think if you and I had just got here that, okay, well, good. Communism is dead. The Soviet empire is over. All of Eastern European, uh, Eastern Europe is free. And the Russians now want to adopt essentially a constitutional Republican form of government in a sense with capitalism and Orthodox Christianity as their kind of, you know, overriding cultural North Star and all this kind of thing. We can get along with that. We can be friends with them. There's no reason to keep up any strategic competition with them in any real way whatsoever. Could have just brought them all the way in like a good sport and could have completely abolished NATO as being completely irrelevant and superfluous. Why do we need the North Atlantic Treaty Organization to keep the Soviet Union out of Western Europe when they're not even in Eastern Europe anymore? When they brought their, their uh, entire army back behind the Euro Mountains and the whole thing was completely kaput like a magic wish. Like an unbelievable dream. I mean, and for people who are too young, and go back and watch a couple of YouTubes or whatever, look at a map of the old USSR that dominated all of Eastern Europe after World War II, all the way up to the Elbe River, halfway across Germany, and then see what it looked like when it ceased to exist. And without a war, without, you know, hardly a shot being fired, the, the dictator in Romania and his wife, I think, were put up against the wall and shot. 
But essentially, in all of the rest of Eastern Europe, the Communist Party just lost power, and it was just over. Um, to think now that America and its military alliance have marched right up to Russia's borders and included countries in the Baltic states that are right on Russia's borders in our military alliance with them, and that we threatened to bring in Ukraine and Georgia in the Caucasus Mountains into, again, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, these countries that are far east of what we ever even used to call Eastern Europe, um, is completely crazy. And of course, it's treated as a threat by the Russians. And the Americans say, and Applebaum said, uh, you know, from the Washington Post, uh, a Soviet hawk, and so therefore a Russia hawk for some reason, this lady. She says, oh, the Russians know that NATO is strictly a defensive alliance, and we would never mean them any harm, and we only mean to keep them from invading anybody else. And I was like, come on. You really, like, even if you really mean that for your side, you really have to, you just claim, you just know that you believe that they see it the same way that you see it when you're encircling their country with a military alliance, that this is purely defensive from aggression that they're not engaged in? And what's she even talking about? And the closest thing they can talk about aggression is, as we'll talk about here in a minute, the, the border skirmishes in Ukraine where they have not invaded. Um, but that's the reaction. In fact, as long as we're on sort of the big picture thing here for a second, at the uh, end of the 90s, well, so Clinton started the, the NATO expansion in 1996 and brought in, you know, Poland and a few others. Bush and Obama and Trump have continued to expand NATO since then. Trump brought in two more, but Bush and Obama brought in many more. And so almost all of Eastern Europe, including the Balkans and the Baltics, uh, have been brought into NATO now. And um, it, when they were starting this process in 1996, there's a guy named George Kennan who was considered to be like the wisest graybeard of all the foreign policy graybeards, wiser and older than Kissinger and Brzezinski. Um, he was the guy who essentially had invented the containment policy after World War II. Um, he had written an article in Foreign Affairs, the Journal of the Council on Foreign Relations, called On the Sources of Soviet Conduct. And it was by X Anonymous, because he still worked for the State Department at the time when he published it. But it was essentially inaugurating the Cold War policy. So here now the Soviet Union's gone. And this same guy gives an interview to the New York Times, the evil Tom Friedman, but in this case, with an open mind. <laughs> and he's asking George Kennan, you know, what do you think about this NATO expansion? And Kennan just is throwing a temper tantrum. You should read it. It's called, And Now a Word from X by Thomas Friedman. And you read it, and Kennan is saying, he, you can tell he's angry and yelling with a raised voice when he's saying all this stuff, that these are the men who overthrew the Soviet Union for us. These are the men who destroyed communism for us and for the world. And now we're treating them like they're still the communists and they're still the bad guys and we hate them and we're out to get them. And everyone who advises us to expand NATO now and says, don't worry, the, the Russians must know that this is not targeting them. The Soviet Union is gone. We like them now. We're friends now. And so we're not expanding NATO to threaten Russia. We're only expanding NATO just to provide greater security and stability and drinking party opportunities for hoity-toity types, but, you know, welfare dollars for Lockheed, but no harm done. In fact, we'll even have a Russian NATO council 
and maybe even talk about possibly bringing Russia into NATO. So see, this is no threat to Russia. And Kennan says, well, this is all nonsense. And of course, it is a threat to Russia. And when they react, the same people who are now telling us it's no big deal will then say, see, the Russian bear, they're aggressive. And that's why we have to do this is to defend Eastern Europe from the rise of, you know, the, re, uh, the return of Russian imperial power, et cetera. And he's just warning way in advance that that's what's going to happen. You're going to provoke them into responding. And then when they respond, you're going to say, see, that's why we have to do all the things that we're doing now. And I, the reason I like quoting that so much is because here's the guy who's in a position to know how this works and who he's dealing with here for sure, you know? And that was why Friedman treated him with the respect that he did when he published that. Again, uh, now a word from X from 1998. So um, before we get to the coup of 2004 and 14 here real quick, Adam, I just want to, uh, I was thinking about this early. I'll see if I can do this right. Let's say, um, well, okay, uh, no, we'll do 2004 first. The Orange Revolution, essentially the Russian-leaning guy won the election and then Bush's government pretended that it was stolen when it really wasn't. And there was, this guy was poisoned somehow and they pretended that the FSB had poisoned him, uh, the challenger, Yushchenko. And uh, was Yanukovych was the guy who really won the election. And that was when they called all the people out in the street and everybody had orange and big TV screens mm -hmm. were flown in from Britain or wherever. And uh, they put on the big, you know, show, reran the election and the pro-Western guy won. Well, in the meantime, everything really fell apart and all the major politicians in Ukraine are so corrupt and switch sides and stab each other in the back so quickly that within 10 years, the very same guy Yanukovych is back in power, again elected in a free and fair election in 2010. And in this case, what happens, well, I'll, I'll do the details in a second, but the long and the short of it is America did a coup and overthrew the government, uh, the, the elected government, and used a bunch of Nazis to do it in a street putsch. And then the new government threatened to seize the Crimean Peninsula from the Russians and kick them out of, well, in fact, uh, pardon me, it, belong, it was under Ukrainian control, but threatened to seize total control of it and expel the Russians from their naval base at Sevastopol. And at that point, the Russians said, actually, no. And they called their Navy, essentially special operations guys, to, and under orders, just go outside and stand on a street corner. And, this, and they essentially reclaimed the Crimean Peninsula for Russia. Um, and no one was killed in that, by the way. People talk about that like it was some massive invasion. Nobody was shot. And in fact, I saw a video at the time of warning shots where the Russians fired some warning shots over the heads of some Ukrainian troops and said, essentially, you boys better turn around. And they said, that's good advice. We'll take it right now. <laughs> Goodbye. And then that was it. Um, and so, you know, they did seize it. But the history of the Crimean Peninsula is that it's belonged to the Russians since the 1780s, 1783, right at the time that America was making peace with Great Britain at the end of the American Revolution. And when we were under the Articles of Confederation and, you know, the the uh, Constitutional Convention wouldn't even take place until 1787. Right. So this is at the time. This is the time that the Russians are seizing the Crimean Peninsula from the Turks, essentially. Now. So that's how, in other words, the Crimean Peninsula belongs to Russia like New York State belongs to the United States. Mm. Right. Uh, essentially. Um, in World War Two, they lost something like three or 400,000 men 
protecting the Crimean Peninsula from the Germans in the war. Now, if you think about how much Americans, well, sticking with New York State for a second here, you think about how seriously people take West Point and how they would feel about a foreign power seizing West Point from the United States, how bad they would fight for it, whatever. Well, what if they already had? What if the New Yorkers and the Northeastern United States, you know, citizens had lost three to 400,000 men defending West Point from the Nazis and how serious they'd take West Point then? Right. Or how serious we'd take the Alamo if we lost three or four hundred thousand men defending the Alamo. And in recent memory, right, not one hundred and eighty years ago or one hundred and what? Yeah, one hundred and eighty years ago or whatever it is. But, um, you know, in recent memory, just, you know, when our grandpas were still alive kind of thing, uh, some of them anyway. Um, so that's how seriously the Russians take the Crimean Peninsula. Now, the reason it was under Ukrainian control is because after Stalin died, Khrushchev needed political support from the Communist Party in Ukraine in order to seize power because there was a contest for power after Stalin. And so he essentially gifted them Ukraine, but it did, I mean, Crimea, but it didn't matter because, of course, everybody was answerable only to the Kremlin anyway. So it was essentially a bookkeeping trick for political support, but really didn't make that much difference. And when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, they signed an agreement saying, we'll respect Ukrainian sovereignty. Ukraine will give up their nukes. Russia won't dominate them or take them over. But the Ukrainians will still allow the Russians to lease this base at Sevastopol. Now, you can tell from my chronology here that that means that that status quo held for 25 years, even through the coup of 2004. It wasn't until the 10 years later in the coup of 2014 when the new government threatened explicitly to kick the Russians out of there that they finally said enough is enough and seized the whole peninsula again without killing anybody. And then it turns out that the peninsula is, as they define it, this is really, as far as I can tell, it's really more nationality than ethnicity, but they call them ethnic Russians as opposed to ethnic Ukrainians, which I don't know. I think they're all slop, but, <laughs> right. but I, you know, it's really a nationality thing, but they are, you know, by far Russian speakers, 80 something percent of the peninsula are Russian speakers and favored, uh, you know, uh, Russian sovereignty and joining the Russian Federation. And so, and, you know, it was Western European, I think German polling firms that went and, you know, confirmed that the people by super duper majorities wanted to join Russia anyway, and were happy with Russia taking back control over the peninsula. So it's hardly the horror show that they portray it as. But think of the parallel. Think about if, say, for example, in the Cold War, and this would make sense, right? In the Cold War, because of the emergency with the Soviet Union, America goes ahead and integrates Canada into the American Union for the duration of the emergency. And for just administrative reasons, halfway through, say, Nixon in the 70s, gives Alaska to Canada to administer, right? Then, after America loses the Cold War to the Soviet Union, the Soviets do a coup in Ottawa, use the Nazis to do a street putsch. They overthrow the government in Ottawa. And then uh, they threaten to kick the Americans out of their base in Alaska and give it over to the Russians. Now, what would America do about that? Yeah, 
probably go retaliate. To war, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I've been doing that analogy for a while, but it only occurred to me that I needed to add Alaska to my analogy. The other part of the analogy is that the people of the pro-Russians in the far east of Ukraine said, well, if you guys can overthrow the government, then uh, an elected government, then we can sure as hell occupy these government buildings and refuse to respect your, you know, illegal coup d'etat junta over us. So screw you. And so then the government in Kiev launched a war on terrorism and started murdering them all, killed like 10,000 of them or more. Now, during this time, this, the, the uh, Russian special operations forces did come across the border to help the people of the east. It's called the Donbass region, Donetsk and Luhansk provinces or, or oblasts, they're called, but essentially, you know, large counties. Um, and the Russians did come to help them keep Kiev out. But they never once sent their army in to just invade. And I think everybody knows that if that Vladimir Putin could just draw a line with a magic marker all the way to Odessa if he wanted and or maybe even all the way to Kiev and order his army to invade. And they could and they would win. They would crush the Ukrainian uh, army. They hadn't done that at the height of the conflict in 2014 and 15. They did not do that. Now, back to my analogy really quick. Now. They're, the Russians support a right wing, you know, like literally Nazi backed street putsch coup in Ottawa. They then talk about uh, kicking the Americans out of their naval bases in Alaska. And then they launch a war on terrorism against the people of British Columbia, you know, in Vancouver, who refused to accept the new government that, you know, they had voted for the one that had been overthrown. And that's what we're doing to them. Mm. And if I if I put that if I put the shoe on the other foot. And talk about the Russians doing all this in Canada. I mean, look at them at the freak out over Russia actually not having a damn thing to do with the election of 2016. <laughs> yeah. But look at the freak out over not even a kernel of truth, not even mm. nothing of truth there. Just a, a, a big pile of rumors about Russian intervention in our election 2016. If they did what I just described in Canada, which is a pretty apt parallel to what America's been doing in Ukraine, then America would go to war. It would be the greatest America. We'd be at absolute DEFCON 1 threatening to nuke Moscow immediately. It would never, and it, frankly, the Russians would never have taken it that far, right? They would not, they're not that stupid like the <laughs> Americans are that stupid. And, and um, it really is like America's run by a bunch of grownups from South Park where they just, <laughs> they just believe all their own BS all day. They're always the good guys. Anyone who resists mm. them is only resisting them because of how bad they are. And, they never see it, never stop and just go, whoa, man, let me think about it from the other guy's point of view for a second here. And I wonder what they think we think about what they think or what, you know what I mean? Like there's no sophistication here. It's just bull in a China shop. Like always, it's like we're invading Iraq all over again. And then, so in the, in the, um, very current context, what's going on is through the Trump years and into the Biden years, they have escalated their um, bomber flights that essentially are to test Russian defenses. So in the Baltic Sea in the north and in the Black Sea in the south and in the Ashtok Sea in the far east, they fly nuclear-equipped bombers or possibly nuclear-equipped bombers uh, like B-52s directly in or, you know, right up to the 12-mile airspace of the Russians to test their radars and test their other defenses and so forth. 
but it's extremely provocative. They do it all the time. I mean, what if the Russians were flying their nuclear bombers into the Gulf of Mexico, testing <laughs> yeah. our radar defenses over Houston? That's what we're doing to them on a constant basis and putting in so-called defensive missiles in Poland. And I think they stopped the Czech Republic deal. They just put the radars in the Czech Republic, but they put them in Poland and, and in one other place, I forget. But these missile launchers are the same ones that you would use to launch Tomahawk nuclear mm. weapons too. Tomahawk cruise missiles tipped with H-bombs. And, and which, you know, Moscow is only, I think, 200, 300 miles from its, the, the, from Russia's Western border. And so, I mean, they're just within very close range. And so this is what Putin is saying was now, according to the Washington Post, Adam, the, uh, starting in November, they said the Russians are building up 150,000 troops and all the equipment ready to invade Ukraine. They've walked that back severely now to tens of thousands. The Russians have sworn, and I'm not saying take their word for it, but it's just right. part of the story. The Russians have sworn that that's not true. I think it probably is true. I, I don't think they're going to invade. I don't know. If they were going to invade, they would have done it in 2014, 15. One thing I left out, the, the eastern Donbass region, which the Russians were helping you know, keep Kiev out, they voted in a referendum to join the Russian Federation in 2015, in early 2015. And Putin told them, no, we don't want you. Because essentially, they'd be a huge strategic liability, a, a huge financial liability. Be, you know, taking on a bunch of pensioners with unfunded pensions, taking on a bunch of decrepit old industries that are, you know, best left to the wrecking ball and a bunch of just economic losses all the way around. There's nothing, you know, there's no good in it. Um, uh, from from his point of view, he's already declined the opportunity to walk right in there before. And um, so they're saying, but I think it probably, I was going to say, I do think it is true that he's probably, that he is kind of flexing and saying, I want a guarantee that you're not going to bring Ukraine into NATO. And I want a guarantee that you're not going to put, you know, base these missiles there and this kind of thing, which are all essentially easy asks. And Biden essentially already two weeks ago back down. I mean, he essentially said, that, um, well, we won't bring Russia into NATO anytime in the next 10 years, which it means indefinitely anyway. Right. Um, it was the same thing that Obama finally, uh, thankfully had done was, you know, give a kick the can far down the road, kind of an answer on NATO. And then he was also asked, Biden was asked at a press conference, well, if Russia does invade Ukraine, are you going to send troops? He said, no, we will not send troops. He said, our, you know, our commitment to our NATO allies is ironclad, but Ukraine is not in NATO. So that should have been a loud and clear message to the Ukrainians, too, that you guys don't get too far out of your skis because we do not have your back here. So, um, so you know, I, I guess, Scott, my question is then like, OK, so well, you kind of answered my first question, like because uh, when Trump was in office, you know, him and Putin were kind of not boys, but they were like mutual respect, whatever the fuck they had going on for you, whatever weird thing they had on going on for each other Tr uh, trump was pretty clearly never gonna you know ever uh push on russia and vice versa but now you know biden's in and, and right when he got in he was like you know fuck putin that guy's a criminal and all this fucking rhetoric and but the talk. thing is see trump it's never personal right i mean trump I and mean, you could argue there's two arguments here one of them i think they're both true really one of them is they wanted to make up for being accused of treason with the russians all the time mm. so they were extra hawkish Obama had overthrown the government in Kiev in 2014, but he was afraid to arm the new army because it was infested with Nazis. And so he was like, yeah, I don't know about giving them weapons, though. 
We'll train him, but we won't arm him. This kind of crap. Right. right. Trump armed him. And in fact, there's a quote somewhere of Trump Jr. saying, see, now you can't say that we're soft on Russia because we're doing this hawkish thing against them, which is exactly the kind of, you know, two-dimensional thinking that you would expect from those guys. Then there's another argument that Trump was never in charge of the Pentagon anyway, the whole four years that he was in office. I mean, if he had really been interested in taking the reins of the national security state and worked hard to do so and had, you know, a staff of loyal people on a kind of Cheneyite level where he could really implement his wishes, then that would have been one thing. But that's not what happened at all. Right. Essentially, he told them, you guys just strut around and all kind of leech off of your macho and do whatever you want. I don't know. And so, you know, he right. essentially left them on autopilot. And there was, you know, plenty of insubordination there too, where they just didn't give a shit what he said anyway. So if he, you know, he would give an order like, gee, I think we ought to back off of Russia a little bit. And they'd be like, well, I didn't hear an order there. You know what I mean? They just, right, right. Like I didn't semantics. get anything in yeah. writing telling me to stop doing any particular thing. So all through his presidency, they're doing these bomber flights. They're increasing naval traffic in the Black Sea. And they're sending arms to Ukraine. You might remember he was impeached. He was impeached yeah. for temporarily holding up an arms deal with Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, because he wanted them to actually do the right thing, which was investigate the firing of the prosecutor who was looking into the company that had hired Joe Biden's son. And of course, the joke is, why had this company, Burisma, why they hired Joe Biden's son? They had hired right. Joe Biden's son because they were tight with the government that Joe Biden, the vice president, had just overthrown. And they thought, oh, no, we might get taxed right out of existence here or something like that. Right. We could get gangsterized. So we want to make friends as fast as we can. So what do they do? Do they hire the cousin of the new prime minister? No. They hired the son of the American vice president. <laughs> That's how to protect them after they were friends with the guys that we had just chucked over. So, I mean, the whole thing is completely bananas. And, and, but then, so what was the deal? The Democrats were afraid to arm the, the Nazi infested Ukrainian armed forces. Trump was arming them, but then temporarily held them up for a good reason. The investigation of corruption of, yeah, his opponent, but still, and then he went ahead and sent them the weapons anyway. And they still <laughs> impeached him for it anyway. And there was a great clip during that impeachment, by the way, which was such a, I mean, I didn't watch very much of it because it was so damned annoying. But yeah, there was one clip of that where I probably should go back and watch that stuff some night. Um, but there was a clip of that testimony of the colonel who was not the original rat. It was Cheramella was the original rat. But then it was Colonel Vindman. Right. It was a Ukrainian national who's somehow a colonel in the American armed forces here stationed on the National Security Council in the White House, who was placed there by John Brennan, the same guy who was involved in framing Trump for Russiagate from CIA, and who was also, you know, the founder of al-Nusra in Syria and guilty of the highest treason in all of American history. But anyway, that guy Vindman that Brennan put there, one of the things that he testified to the Senate, he goes, you know, I, this is a paraphrase, but it's really close. I mean, I'm I'm honest to the spirit of the thing here, Adam. He says, <laughs> he says, listen, you know, the president wanted to change our Ukraine policy, but the interagency, we had already met 
And we had already decided, we already know what America's Ukraine policy is. And he had no right to come in and change it. And it's like, you and the who? The interagency? What does that even mean? That's like a meeting of the deputies committee of the National (laughs) Security Council? The interagency? You guys decided? And who in the hell does the president of the United States think he is telling his National Security Council whether we're going to do this, do that, lean this way or that? Are you crazy? But that was the way they saw it. I mean, you could interchange that with the deep state, whatever it is, the informal network of personal relationships of the people who run the national security state. They are, you know, uh, uh, Barack Obama's deputy national security uh, national security advisor, Ben Rhodes, called them the blob, the national security, you know, state inside and outside of government, the think tanks. The arms manufacturers, I don't know if he was including the arms manufacturers, he should have been, but the think tanks and, you know, the agencies themselves, that these guys don't want to have to get real jobs. And so they always agree unanimously that whatever we do, it better be something and it better be big and it better be sooner, not later, always. And how, you know, again, you know, Dick Cheney is probably the most successful man to be an executive in charge of this government in the sense of being able to control the government agencies and make them do what he wants them to do. And even then he was only partially successful. And of course he's pure evil. I mean, he hired Israel's fifth column in America to lie us into war with Iraq. So I'm not praising him for that, but I'm just saying to illustrate Colin Powell told Bob Woodward, that Cheney had created a separate government inside the government. It's uh, if you want to look this up, search Powell Gestapo office because he accused Douglas Fife of, you know, he was talking about the Office of Special Plans in the Pentagon where they were lying us into war. The Fife's Gestapo office over there, um, in, in separate government. That was what he told Woodward. Cheney had created a separate government, and man, they were effective. And Cheney had his men ensconced in just all the right places on the NSC, in the state and defense departments to essentially get their way to buffalo us into that war. But man, did they later get a hell of a lot of pushback, didn't they, from the CIA and the State Department? Who, In fact, you know, the State Department insisted on making the Iraq war even worse than the neocons would have had it by trying to stay and, you know, rebuild every damn thing. When at least some of the neocons wanted to hit and run, at least. Um, and, you know, but... In a good way, the CIA pushed back hard and the and the military pushed back hard against war with Iran in the Bush years. And this is essentially complete insubordination. Only thank God for that in this case, that the CIA published an NIE saying the Iranians are not making nuclear weapons at all. How do you like that, Bush? Justify a war now, jerk, that the official position of the National Intelligence Council which is, you know, representing not the wishes of the Bush government at all, but representing, first of all, the truth, but second yeah. of all, an effort by the kind of more permanent establishment to say that you guys have gone too far and we're railing you, you know, reining you back in now. And the same thing had happened with um, Admiral Fallon, um, Fox Fallon had said, oh, Will, and he was the commander of CENTCOM at the time, said, oh, yeah, Will, and we'll attack Iran over my dead body. It's not happening on my watch, period, which is essentially just, you know, some admiral overruling the president and vice president of the United States and maybe even overruling the chiefs. But just saying 
absolutely not in a way that really diffused the crisis. I mean, this was in the spring of 2007, as close as we've ever been to real war with Iran. And, um, and the permanent establishment said, and yet you look at the very same kind of forces were the ones who absolutely framed Donald Trump for treason with Russia when there was again, not one iota of truth to it. Not one of those. Whatever happened about to him? All these people who just lied blatantly. Like, you never heard about any of them getting like punished or arrested or like, like you just. It was like, oh well. Very few. Very <laughs> yeah, few. But you know what? That investigation is still going, and it's going better than I had thought that it would. Um, there are two people. Let's see. One guy, a, a C, uh, an FBI lawyer, has been, you know, convicted. Was pled guilty um, to altering a document to implicate Carter Page. Which was just actually a big deal. I right. mean, one of the one of the biggest parts of the story was that Carter Page was this middleman, Aaron Boy, between the Trump campaign and the Russians, and all of this. Well, what the FBI agent had deleted out or whited out of the FISA warrant was that Carter Page was a loyal CIA asset, and that every time he ever went to Russia and talked with any important businessman or suspicious person of any kind, he would always go back to the CIA and debrief them entirely and tell them everything, hmm. and. The CIA told the FBI that, oh, Page, he's one of our guys. We trust him and we like him. Well, that would have undermined the entire lie. And so they just deleted it and refused to tell the judge that. And a guy was convicted for that. Of course, he got a slap on the wrist, but a guy was convicted for that. And then uh, they've gone for the guy who, you know, made up the lion's share of the stories that went in the Steele report, who was a guy from the Brookings Institution who was hired by Hillary Clinton's lawyer to tell the lies. And then uh, there's actually a developing story the other day. They didn't say who, but it said there was a petition by the government that said uh, it was like a conflict of interest warning. If I have this right, this is very close to correct. If I'm a little bit off the story, it's close enough for argument's sake. I'm pretty sure it's the government saying, Your Honor, uh, there are a bunch of people on the Clinton side here who are probably going to need separate lawyers because they are going to have conflicting interests as we mm. proceed. So, you know, um, in other words, you don't have one lawyer representing all these different people because they're going to be pointing fingers at each other right, right. trying to get out of it. So, you know, I sure would like to see, you know, John Brennan and the big guys. Mm -hmm. I, I very much have, but you notice all the worst guys, Clapper and Brennan and all those guys. I mean, I don't watch TV, but I, my understanding is, They've all shut up and Brennan is not on CNN or MSNBC or whichever it was anymore. Um, and, and those guys have maybe lawyered up and shut their mouths finally about this. But they absolutely deserve to go to prison for that. That's the craziest for thing sure. in the world. It's not. It's like it took up so. I mean, I think that was part of the whole like, let's just defame Trump. No matter like, again, he sucked. But like it was like the overabundance of like, we really got to make sure everybody thinks this guy sucks. Like, yeah, but you're just yeah. wasting so much time and money and fucking actual problems going on. It's like, right. but you hit it why they exist. did it, right? Like, because he wanted yeah. to get along with Russia. Of course. And he said, you know, this is his problem, right? Is he could have just kept his trap shut and got elected. Instead, he's got to go, Russia, 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 let's get along with Russia. And this is just a joke. I'm not crying about it, but I'm just saying, you look at the effect that it had on all the liberals. When he said, hey, Russia, guess what? We're still missing 30,000 Hillary Clinton emails. If you can fucking get your computer guys on that <laughs> for us, that'd be nice, which I think is great. I mean, I repeat that right now that, yeah, yeah, yeah. there are still 30,000 missing mm -hmm. emails 
and probably the Russians do have them and probably they should leak that to WikiLeaks and that would be fine with me, you know? Um, Agreed. But that was what he was saying um, and, and he did it in such a way that just they freaked out, you know, and went to war with him. Part of the thing about Trump is, and I said this at the time, um, was that he had talked to Kissinger and Kissinger had essentially at least agreed with him that, yes, I think you're right that we should be leaning toward Russia to help balance against China. And last thing, we don't want to push them together. Kissinger's big achievement was splitting China off from Russia in under Nixon and making friends, opening with China, shaking hands with Mao and ending the Cold War with China way back in 1974. And, um, and so, you know, now he's saying, let's do the same thing, but the other way. Whereas everybody else's policy is you got to demonize Russia and China and, and essentially pressure them both in a way that pushes them together, which is what we're seeing right now. You can read a lot of great coverage of this by uh, Ray McGovern and Ted Snyder and others at antiwar.com right now, where from the point of view of a traditional American military imperial type strategist, the last thing in the world you want to do is get Russia and China working closely together. They have plenty of conflicting interests, but only if we let them be to their own devices and problems. But if we're constantly threatening them all, we see something that, you know, they don't have an official treaty of alliance, but just the other day, I think one week ago, Chairman Xi said that what we have is much stronger than an alliance. So, you know, whatever exactly that means, but it means that that they can frustrate the Americans' imperial design. So, in other words, never mind from a libertarian, non-interventionist point of view, but from the point of view of the American empire, they can't do anything right. You know, Trump was speaking reason that, look, Henry Kissinger told me that I was smart, that we ought to be friends with Russia, give them, we have all these things to offer the Russians in terms of integration into Europe and into, you know, American and Western and Northern uh, civilization under the American-led order. We have nothing to lose and and so much to give to uh, get along with Russia, you know. And um, and yet the Democrats found it necessary to accuse Donald Trump of treason to try to prevent him from getting elected, and then to try to keep themselves out of prison by stringing the thing along as long as they could. <laughs> And, and and recruited the FBI and the CIA and the, pardon me, the entire American establishment to help them do it too in the form of the special counsel investigation and the rest. And I'm sorry, just to belabor the point, one thing here real quick on the Russiagate, and I swear I'll shut up about it. The thing of it is this. My old friend, Jason Leopold, sometimes gets burned on stories. I, ha- I hate to say. One of the stories that he got burned on was that Trump had told his lawyer, Michael Cohen, to lie to Congress. And Leopold, I believe him, had a source in the Mueller investigation or close to it that said, oh man, they Michael Cohen admitted today that Donald Trump told him to lie to Congress. Well, that's impeachable, man. That's a big deal. You can't do that no matter what the lie is about. That's right. huge, straight up felony, right? So- Leopold puts this story out and the Mueller investigation team, the special investigator, special prosecutor's office put out a statement immediately saying that's not true. 
It's completely ridiculous, and we're not saying that, and it's not true, and you're going to find when we put out our report that ain't in it because that ain't right. It was the kind of denial you could believe. You know right. what I mean? That that's yeah, just, yeah. come on. But then, so that raises the obvious question. Well, why couldn't they have put out a press release a year and a half ago, let's be generous, right? saying, we do not suspect the president of treason. We do not believe that he is a compromised, blackmailed spy agent asset of the Russian government and that that's a popular media narrative, but we don't think that that is true. And we're not investigating that, frankly, because we don't have any credible evidence leading us to that. They could have said that. Right. They pretended to investigate him for two straight years under the special counsel investigation. That was after they failed to remove him under the 25th Amendment, as though the 25th Amendment says you can just do a coup if you make up a lie about somebody. <laughs> um, and, um, and so that's what they did not do. They did not say to the American people, rest assured that whatever you think of the president, we have no reason to believe that he is a suborned blackmailed agent of a foreign power, any foreign power, and especially not the Russians. And so you can, you know, sleep tight. The nuclear codes are in the hands of patriots, right. whoever they are, they're Americans and, and they, you know, are on our own side anyway. Right. That's the least they could have done, Adam. Yeah. Was agreed. tell the American people your president is not a traitor, despite what you're hearing on TV. But they let despite it just go what on. May come out about somebody's relations with the Russians, which there never was anything, right? Every right. single one of those stories amounted to jack. But they could have been explicit about that, and they weren't. And what does that tell you? That they were playing their role and mm -hmm. pretending to investigate the thing meant that they were taking it seriously enough that there must be something to it. Otherwise, why are they investigating it for two solid years? Where there's that much smoke, there must be fire and all of that stuff. And then it wasn't even, right, it was just right before they called it quits that they started leaking that actually there are no new indictments coming. Right. And some of the top investigators are now resigning and going on to other work. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> you don't, but, but you didn't indict anybody for any Russian collusion. You indicted people for lying about what they had for breakfast and which day they met with Jimmy and had a meeting about something that had nothing to do with anything. And what are you talking about? They you were know? grasping at straws. I mean, at the end there. It's crazy. It really is. It's like a COINTELPRO op that you do against the Black Panthers or maybe like a CIA op that you would do against the government in Ukraine. Like, how are we going to overthrow the government of Ukraine? Well, we're going to throw a bunch of allegations at the guy until he's completely <laughs> discredited. Then right. we're going to run him out of town on a rail, you know? And yeah, which, yeah, by the way, you, someone you, pointed you, out to me the other day, they didn't come out with that report until after the midterms. They had right. to make sure to get past the midterms before they would, uh, you know, come back. It's, it's the current day, like, like, assassination without actually assassinating somebody. That's what it kind of is. It's That's just right. like, yeah, it's just like, yeah. hey, we're going to we're gonna make you where you can't even defend yourself. It's like even everything you're saying is true. No one believes you or people believe you. But, like, the, the press for sure is on our side. So they're not going to believe you. And every day they're going to be like, you're a criminal. You're a criminal. And then you could be like, it's like that thing of, like, if someone calls you racist, you go, I'm not a racist. You automatically lost the argument. Because you're right. defending, like, you're not a race. It's the same thing yeah. with him. He's, they're like, you colluded with Russia. He's like, no, he didn't. Like, that's proof you colluded with Russia. You're saying right. no. He's like, what? So it was that for two fucking years. And, of course, like, yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> like, you know what? I mean, if it had been me, and, and this wasn't originally my idea, you know, people, well, people had said he should just declassify everything. But then I kind of thought, well, no, here's what he should do. Is it should be like the famous Saturday Night Massacre 
when Nixon fired the special prosecutor and then all the top officials of the Justice Department resigned in 73 or four, I guess there, 74. Um, that's what he should have done. But he should have done it all Kung Fu style like this. He should have said the, um, the attorney general and deputy attorney general, the FBI director and deputy FBI director and all their chiefs of staff and all their most important people and all the special prosecutor's office, all of you are fired. Everybody, you're fired. That's it. It's over. Part two, though, of the statement is I'm hereby declassifying every last shred of evidence. I'm turning over all of the campaign's documents that from my own stash. Plus, I hereby declassify everything that the FBI, CIA, and NSA have on my staff, my relations, my people, my campaign, and Russia. And I am hereby turning it all over by the truckload to the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and National Public Radio, and you guys can go through it. Mm. And you got all the time in the world. And as soon as you can find where I'm guilty of treason, we'll start this investigation over again. But right now, it's over. It's over. You're all fired. It's over. And so I'm going to turn over all that? this stuff, and then you're going to see there's nothing to it because it's all a bunch of crap, which is exactly what would have happened, you know? So and the Washington Post and New York Times and the, you know, would have been the Wall Street Journal probably would have been out front to say there's nothing in here. So so you think he you didn't know? do that because of like public image or like he got advised against that? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, even... I think, yeah, I think the idea would have been just shot down in meetings by whatever lawyers or whatever that, oh, well, we can't do that. But yeah, he can. And that's right. how it would have to be, right? Like I named, I named the Post, the Times and NPR News because they clearly had an agenda to get that SOB if they could, right? The Journal mm -hmm. are in there because they're Republicans, but they're also serious gentlemen and they will do <laughs> the work, right? So so that, that's we throw that in for balance. But here, NPR News, you right. let Mara Eliasson and all her little interns wade through this all you want and you ain't gonna find nothing. And yeah, that would've been sweet. Yeah, from, and it would've worked, I, it would've worked. I'll tell you, um. In the Bob Woodward book, Fear, and this, and and damn him for holding this for the book, he should have put this way out in front in the media. And Woodward has a real reputation. He's the guy who brought down Nixon at right, the Washington Post, right? And and he put this in his book, Fear, that Trump's first lawyer, when they first started this thing, right as they're coming into power in 2017, Trump's lawyer says, Dowd, says to him, Hey, man, tell me now, Mr. President, swear to God, honest lawyer, client privilege, nobody else in the room, but you got to be honest with me. Is there anything to this Russia stuff? And Trump said, hell no, there's not. I'm telling you, it's all complete crap. And the guy says, OK, great. Well, then I want to turn over everything we've got from the campaign to the special counsel's office as a gesture of goodwill. I'm going to talk to the cops. I'm the lawyer. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. And Trump says, fine, go take it, do it. That's how like the response was like, please, for the love of God, get it done. So Dow takes a truck full of every scrap of paper from the campaign, brings it over to the special counsel's office, meets with Weissman, the deputy, and says, here's everything. And you'll see there's nothing in there about Russia. It's all a bunch of crap. And by us being this forthright and honest and generous with you, we expect a little bit of respect and honesty from you guys in exchange. That's it. But we're not requiring a deal. We're not making you, we're not requiring you to promise us that. But this is our gesture of goodwill. Here's everything. 
Now, Woodward, as soon as he knew that that was true, should have put that on the top page above the fold, top headline of the Washington Post. Trump, believing in his entire innocence, ordered his lawyer to turn over every scrap of paper from the campaign without reservation to the special special counsel's office. And they've got it all. And we should know if he's guilty of treason within a week. Right. You know, and they didn't do that. You know, he held it for his book. And then when the book came out, I don't even think that made headlines. I'm the only one that I've ever heard comment on that, actually. Same. So, I mean, so this is so the whole thing was legitimately just a, obviously a fuck Trump, get him out of here type of thing. But like, well, they were worried that, well, first of all, they had framed him. Yes. Yeah, to try to hurt him so that Hillary could win. Right. It started out as an op against him to change the subject from the leaked emails to the Russians leaked them to help him because he's in on it with them. So they just had to change the subject to something. And then from there, it's all a dirty snowball, right? Because you got all these other people, the Cambridge Four and the Steele and his guys at the Brookings Institution. And then the cops, all the FBI agents, CIA agents who decided they wanted to pretend to take this seriously. Right. Pretend to investigate, take it to the FISA court, spy on Trump and his staff, use the two hop rule, to tap everybody's phone and see if they can dig up anything else. And as crazy as it sounds, I mean, they wanted to brief the electoral college that the Russians had stole the election for Trump. And I swear I can't find this footnote anymore. They might have done the Winston Smith job at the New York Times site and rewritten the article. I could swear to God it was at the New York Times where Hillary's people said, yes, and we want them if they can't, if the electoral college won't throw it to Hillary, we want them to at least throw it to the House where the House can give it to Paul Ryan or Colin Powell. And I admit that when I go back looking for that, I can't I know I'm right about that. Yeah. When I go back looking for it now, I can't find that. But I can find where they talk about giving it to John Kasich or Colin Powell. So whatever. I'm still right. They wanted to, <laughs> they wanted to have the CIA brief the Electoral College on this lie and then refuse the presidency to Donald Trump. Then when that didn't work, they wanted to invoke the 25th Amendment. And say that he's unfit, like he's Woodrow Wilson. He's had a stroke and is incapable, incapable of executing the duties of his office. And we're going to get whoever Rex Tillerson and the boys to gang up and throw him out of power. And this is in, you know, he's been in office six, eight weeks. But that that's the hypocrisy, though, that every middle of the road person, forget libertarians and like, but every middle, middle of the road person, they see that and then they look at Biden who can't, I have yet to see that man complete one coherent sentence in his whole presidency. Right. And they're mm -hmm. like, he's doing great guys. This guy is fucking a okay. Like, it's like, how do you not see the clear bias? Like, we already see it. We're, we're already so right. far one way where it's like, whatever, but like the regular person who doesn't even believe in anything you just said, even though everything you said was a hundred percent fact. You saw people be like, well, I don't know. He was too close to Russia. They still won't listen to you, but even just your own eyes, dude, when you see what they did with Trump being like, he's crazy. And that guy was pretty witty. Uh, he's fucking funny. I'll give him that. <laughs> like, like, And then Great. Biden, who's like, he's like, he'll be like, ah, take the, the, the thing. I don't know. And you're like, hey, man, what's that guy's the leader, though? <laughs> like, no one's saying shit. It's pretty obviously biased. I mean, I got to say, though, this is probably the least worst version of Biden that's ever existed. And this guy has been. <laughs> I swear to, I, oh man, I promise you this is true, dude. I got, I got receipts for this, buddy. It's Yesterday's Man by Bronco Marchteach. It's awesome spelled name. like Marcetic. <laughs> if you want to look it up, it's spelled like Marcetic. Bronco Marchteach. And the book is called Yesterday's Man. And in there he says, 
the first thing that Joe Biden did when he came to power in 1973, he won Senate in 72, was sworn in at the beginning of 73. You know what's the first thing he did? Uh, the first thing he did. <laughs> well, think about 73. The first thing he did was denounce Richard Nixon for his hasty and precipitous oh. withdrawal from Vietnam. Oh, perfect. That's how Joe Biden got his start. And then he spent the entire his entire career being essentially the most right wing Democrat he can be to prove that Democrats aren't wimps. We're going to be, you know, more right wing than the Gestapo on the poor and on crimes and on parole and on mandatory minimums and on civil forfeiture and all of the drug wars and the DEA and, and drug war and foreign policy, you know, spraying poison on the poor Colombians and God knows what his entire career. He was the chair of the foreign relations committee in 2002 when they were lying us into war with Iraq. And at that time, the Senate was in control of the Democrats. And so it's not just that he was George H, uh, pardon me, George W. Bush's handmaiden in lying us into that <laughs> war and pushing us into that war. It's that he could have stopped it. He could have said, no way. Actually, as chair of the foreign relations committee, I'm holding some hearings. And instead, you know what he did? He held two days of hearings and he, inter he held, uh, had only Hawks testify. And no one who was against the war was allowed to testify. Or maybe if they had one dissident, but it was nobody with the credentials. Whereas they could have had Scott Ritter, who was the former UN weapons inspector, who could say, listen, I know what they don't have and what capability they don't have. And I'm telling you, they are not making sarin gas right now. Forget it. You know, I'm, I'm looking for a tenth of a percent of a margin out there in the desert somewhere. This is all wrong. And he did not do that. And, and so with the Senate in the control of the opposition party, Joe Biden was really a, was really W. Bush and Dick Cheney's whip in getting the Democratic uh, senators in their majority to vote for Iraq War II. And that included Hillary and, and Gephardt and Daschle and Kerry and, you know, all of the most prominent Democrats voted for it in the Senate, whereas to give the credit where it's due, Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in the House opposed it, which frankly, it was safe for them to do so because it was a Republican controlled house at the time. Um, but they did vote against it. But in the Senate, the Democrats supported it under Joe Biden's leadership. And he was one of the worst hawks on Iraq during that whole era. So sorry to get to the point. I think he's so old and tired now. And you know what? I'll say this too, because I'm tired of saying it, but uh, whatever. A lot of people hadn't heard this yet. And I think that it's really right. That, um, Joe Biden's non-crackhead son, Bo, <laughs> yeah. died of brain cancer. Mm -hmm. And there's every reason to believe that he got that brain cancer because he was stationed next to burn pits in Kosovo and in Iraq. Mm. And there's, you know, an epidemic of cancers. And the burn pits means they just take all their trash, right. throw it in a shallow ditch and burn it with diesel fuel. And just the thickest, blackest smoke of the worst kind of benzene rings and God knows what in there you could imagine burning you know <laughs> computers and munition munitions and fuel and plastics of all descriptions and and all these things and so there's been you know soldiers have been really sick so Bo didn't die in the war right but he did die of the war right and the you, thing is is joe biden may be dim and he may be a piece of crap but he did kill his own son and he knows it and in fact there's a interview with pbs frontline no no no, not frontline no pbs news hour where he talks about what happened was 
it's a it's an interesting story. There's a guy named um, Joseph Hickman, who was a sergeant and a guard stationed an uh, army, pretty sure army um, sergeant on guard duty at Guantanamo Bay. And he was witness to the aftermath of the CIA murdering three guys at their secret black site at Guantanamo in July of 2006. Now, if you Google this, you'll find the other Scott Horton, not me. The other Scott Horton wrote really great pieces about this for Harper's. But anyway, this same guy, Hickman, the heroic whistleblower on the CIA murders at Guantanamo, is the same guy who wrote this book, The Burn Pits. There's a whole chapter in there about Bo Biden. And, and Joe Biden then, in this interview with NewsHour, says, somebody gave me this book, and they said, hey, Joe, look, there's a whole chapter about Bo in here. And that's how he found out about it. So that's how he found out about the burn pit issue. Huh. But I think, you know, he had at some point he had to have admitted that like, man, his non-crackhead son is dead because of him. Cause he, he's the one who, you know, as much as any other man in this society got us into that war, as much as Paul Wolfowitz or, or Colin Powell, if not as much of, as much as uh, Bush and Cheney, but as much as any of the second tier guys who lied us into that war, I mean, he was responsible for that. And I think that that really did affect him in a way. You know, if W. Bush had lost, you know, one of his daughters in Iraq, she was over there being a nurse and she got shelled and exploded to death. That might have finally got through to him. You know what I mean? I don't right. think anything could get through that thick skull other than something, you know, like that. But. But even, even with W. Biden, Bush would have been impressed by that. You know what I mean? But even so, with the, um, the Biden thing, like the both thing is like, could it be though that he's also so delusional that he doesn't think that and he just thinks nah, like, nah, okay. I, you know what? He's, he said over and over again about Afghanistan and the terror wars that like, well, particularly Afghanistan that I wouldn't send my son over there. And if I wouldn't send my son over there to fight for women's rights in Afghanistan, that's not a good enough reason. And if I'm not going to do that, then how am I going to ask somebody else to give their son for that? Mm. You know what I mean? That's the kind of thing. You know, Obama doesn't talk like that. W. Bush doesn't talk like that. Donald that's Trump true. doesn't talk like that. That's true. But that's the thing. Again, just because this guy's been at it so long, he's made so many mistakes. He's been wrong. Not just mistakes. But he's been horrible on so yeah. many things for so long. Like, what else does he have left but to be right about stuff? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's, that's true. He can just kind of, by default, like, I mean, again, on Ukraine, I guarantee you, just like on Afghanistan, all the hawks are screaming in his ear to be tougher and worse. And he backed down, you know, um, he didn't. They there was essentially no one wanted out of Afghanistan except us. Yeah. You know, and the soldiers, <laughs> yeah. like real humans yeah. out here in the country. But in terms of power factions, in right. terms of the blob in New York and D.C., none of them wanted out of Afghanistan. They all wanted to stay. They all demanded he stay. And he goes, no. And he invoked his son. He was like, dude, my son died because of a war anyway, kind of thing. And I wouldn't give his <laughs> yeah. life for this. And, I, you know, you got to give him at least that credit. I don't even think Trump would have followed through on getting out of Afghanistan. I agree. Honestly, man. I, I, I said, and people get mad, but I'm like, the only good thing Biden did was that. And people were like, oh, he did it like shit. Okay, man, name yeah, a good way what? to do it. <laughs> like, yeah, what do you mean? Whole, <laughs> yeah, the whole like war was no an what. absolute disaster. So, yeah, I mean, it. in fact, like, the right answer there, right, is it could not have possibly gone smoothly. I mean, what are we talking about? The army and the government that we built completely evaporated. I mean, they. How are you going to make that look good? Yeah. You know, what are you talking right. about?
You know, it doesn't look good. It's an absolute failure. You know, 20 years and you didn't even, you weren't even able to prop up the government to stand until you were all the way out. It fell before you're even gone. <laughs> you know? Do we Just still have any troops there? Because you started to leave, it fell. You know? For God's sake. Do we still have any troops in Afghanistan? Or, or like, they're all gone now? Like no, everything. they are gone. No, no, no. Just we Iraq. No we're we're in still in. I'm sorry. So we're, we're just still in Iraq then. That's right. We got troops in Iraq and in Syria, and we're still helping the Saudis commit genocide in Yemen. And we've right. still got special operations forces operating in Somalia. Although reportedly, so Trump scaled that back on the way out the door. And apparently Biden has tried to hold the line on that and not really re-escalated in Somalia. I've read conflicting reports about that over the last year, but apparently the overall posture there is trying to be more restrained. But um, is the Somalia thing just pirates or they're dealing with like terror? Oh, no. Yeah. No, that's a whole other thing. You'll have to read the book, man. But I'll tell you what, you could start with this. Um, If you just search my name in Somalia and maybe add FFF. Oh, in fact, there's a YouTube of me. Type my name in Somalia into YouTube. And there's a YouTube of me sitting right in this chair, but facing the other way there. Um, talking all about it. It's, it's sort of like an overview of the book. And I do the breakdown on Somalia there. And there's a, a an article that I wrote for the Future Freedom Foundation back in 2013, I think, called um, U.S. Government Responsible for Somalia's Misery. And it's about how essentially right at the very dawn of the terror war. In fact, Adam, this month, right around now, makes Somalia America's longest war. Wow. The Afghan war, you know, we, we got out of Afghanistan in, you know, the end of August, beginning of September. So in other words, just shy of 20 years. But as of right now, we've been at war in Somalia for 20 years straight. Somalia is America's longest war, not Afghanistan. No one even knows right about now. it. Like yeah. no one knows about it. They think Black Hawk down. They like yeah. Black Hawk down. I'm like, yeah, but also other things. <laughs> yeah. You might've seen where Dave got an argument with this guy where he said on Twitter, this kind of right winger, and he said, Dave said, you know, look, um, oh, because, you know, liberals and conservatives go, oh, yeah, if you like freedom and you think freedom works so well, why don't you move to Somalia? Yeah. Just complete ridiculousness. And the argument there, there's a kernel of an argument there, which is that there was a period of statelessness in the very late 1990s and very early 2000s where it was the best situation that they had, had in a very long time. They had been ruled by a communist dictator. And then when he fell it was a civil war for, you know, about almost a decade. Uh, and Black Hawk Down took place in the middle of that. But by the end of the decade, all the warlords were basically exhausted. And you really just had regular people running affairs with no real monopoly on force. It was kind of a default anarcho-capitalism going on. And there was, you know, no one to collect tariffs at the ports. And so business was booming. The uh, cellular industry was booming. The economy, you know, GDP was skyrocketing. And we're talking from nothing to something here. Right. You know, they were coming up from communism and war. And it was, they were doing really well. And some libertarians had noticed. But then again, W. Bush canceled all that back in 2001. Right. And Dave said something about how, no, you idiot, George W. Bush attacked Somalia and ruined everything that they had going on back 20 years ago. And this right winger goes, you're so stupid. W. Bush wasn't the president in 1993 during Black Hawk Down. 
And Dave goes, yeah, but that's because that's not what I'm talking about. dude. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, just the last that. time that you heard of America being in Somalia. Right. But I'm just telling you, he sent the CIA and the special operations forces there at the end of 2001. They've been fighting there ever since. And so don't give me right. this crap, you know? And then the guy's like, oh, yeah, well, you just looked that up. And he's like, no, dude, <laughs> you just looked that up. What are you talking about? And of course, but Dave goes, way, no, man, I'm friends Dave... with Scott. I know this stuff, you know? Even if Dave did just look that up, it doesn't make him wrong. <laughs> like it's, yeah, still, no, like, it's the worst argument against that. It's like, well, you just w went to the internet. It's like, okay. Right. Yeah, but he would have <laughs> so. had to go to the internet before he said it, not after he said it, right? Like, you don't just wing that. That's so just, fucking funny. Dude. You're not just accidentally, like, coincidentally correct that we've been fighting a covert war in Somalia for 20 years. If you never heard of it but before, that, that does but. kind of show you, like, good propaganda that we have because that guy's yeah. like, that didn't happen. It's like, yeah, because Black Hawk Down makes a cool movie. But right. us sending CIA guys and right. JSOC guys to murder people isn't as cool of a movie. And <laughs> so now, so the piracy thing. He asked about the piracy. So that's all in the north, essentially all in the north, in Puntland and Somaliland. If you look at Somalia, it's sort of like a seven, you know, like a yeah. long thing in a thingamajig. So the top part there is Somaliland and Puntland, and they have their own problems, including all this piracy. But all the, the horrible terror war has gone on in the southern yeah. part. And yeah, it is, of course, a tragic story, man. And in fact, one of the first things they did was the bad guy from Black Hawk Down, Adid, yeah. Well, they went and hired his son to go and hunt down and kill terrorists for us. And of course, all he did was turn the country upside down. You know, and they've been fighting the war ever since. Oh, Al Shabaab, they say, son backfired. No way. That's right. I know. Can you believe it? <laughs> and and um, you know, you hear about Al Shabaab now, the terrorists. Yeah. Al Shabaab. Al Shabaab. Al Shabaab. We got a drone war against Al Shabaab. But they didn't even become a problem until 2006. And we've been bombing that country for five years leading up to that. You know, they never talk about that. They just go, oh, yeah, Al-Shabaab. But they don't say that. Well, they had a government there. And then America helped Ethiopia bomb them to smithereens. Well, first of all, sorry to go through this. Step one, America backs warlords. Yeah. Step two, the people throw the warlords out. Step three, America hires Ethiopia, the state army, to invade and crush the government that they had built to get rid of our warlords. And so then the youth, Al-Shabaab is the youth, or in fact, I was told by someone with experience in Somalia, a better translation is actually the boys. Al-Shabaab, the boys, they were the least influential part of the government that had come together to force the warlords out. They were the youth, right? But then once the war began for real and Ethiopia invaded, guess who picked up the rifles to fight? The old men? No, the youth. So right. now the group that had been the least influential part of the new government that had come together to get rid of our warlords now became the dominant faction on the field. And of course, the more that they swear their loyalty to Al-Qaeda and a radical agenda, the more Saudi money they get and all of that kind of thing. And so you have essentially a local insurgency provoked by the United States as a meddling outside power that's, but then is run by guys who are sort of dressed up as Al-Qaeda terrorists, which then in the vicious cycle excuse-making machine justifies our intervention there when it's our intervention that made it that way, of course. It's, as Justin Ramondo wrote at, at antiwar.com back in probably 06, um, that America's war in Somalia is the entire war on terrorism writ small. 
And here you can just see it. Step one, wow. two, three, four, and five, how they did it all themselves. You know, same thing over and over again. It is wild when you wrap it up in a bow like that. It's like Somalia, but larger for everywhere else. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yep, kind of exactly. <laughs> like, what's going on in Somalia? Well, you know the whole terror war? It's like that, only in one country. Right. You know? It's super fucking interesting. Uh, yep. Scott, I got to run. I have more fucking comedy and stuff to do tonight and more podcasts cool. and shit. But, uh, dude, Malcolm Dead, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, you're the man. Yeah. I know everybody knows you and every, but please, uh, I know you have an audio coming out for uh, an audio book just came out last night. Awesome. Plug that, please. Plug whatever you want to plug. Yeah, so the book uh, you can see over my shoulder there is Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Before that, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And uh, yes, the audiobook of both is available. Uh, the audiobook of Enough Already just came out. Uh, sorry for the delay on that. And then also, I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute. I got all your great anti-government propaganda there. And my show is the Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio. And that's all at scotthorton.org. I got 5,650-something interviews for you there going back to 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you there at scotthorton.org. Boom. You guys you guys know the great Scott Horton, everybody. Go get that audiobook. I have to get the audiobook too. Uh, and again, come see me on the 30th uh, in Jersey, uh, Rexy's and all the other stuff. Uh, Scott, you're the man. Thank you so much. You are. Everybody, Thank you, dude. Uh, I think I have Angela McCardle next. I don't know. My schedule's a fucking mess. But everybody, love you. Peace. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Find Adam on social media, Twitter and IG at Adam Nutter or Facebook and TikTok at Adam Nutter Comedy. And for podcasts and merch, check out www.droptent.com. Don't forget.